So let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. <coughs> Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Tonight I'm going to talk about seclusion and I will start this talk with an experience that happened to me in the early years when I was practicing meditation in Burma. So one day I was leaving the dining hall after having finished my lunch. And just before going down the few stairs where I had left my slippers, all of a sudden I felt so utterly alone and abandoned. Appearing out of nowhere this feeling of loneliness and abandonment hit me with full force. I was completely unprepared for that. Although I was practicing in a meditation center where other meditators, local and foreign meditators alike, were practicing, I could not help feeling completely abandoned by everybody, by everything. So there I was standing at the edge of the stairs and this phrase kept going through my head, alone and abandoned in this vast world, alone and abandoned in this last vast world. It was an extremely painful experience but at the same time it revealed me a deep truth. If I wanted to become enlightened, I had to uh, do it myself. I had to realize the truth myself. Nobody else could do it for me. No matter how much guidance I got from my teacher, no matter how inspiring it was to be meditating together, with so many other meditators, I had to work out my own liberation. So this insight hit me so strongly that tears started to flow down my cheeks. And instead of going back to my room in order to take a shower, as I usually did after lunch, I went straight over to the meditation hall sat down on my mat and started to observe this feeling of loneliness and abandonment. And as I was observing it, then gradually this feeling of loneliness and abandonment faded away and it gave place to a growing trust in the Dhamma. So prior to that, 
during all my years of practicing meditation, I had experienced small little insights which seemed to be in line with the teachings of the Buddha and I also realized that by practicing this teaching there was a growing sense of contentment and in a way a growing sense of happiness. Therefore I realized all I could do was simply trust the Dhamma and continue to practice. Even if it seemed such a lone and solitary path, there was no other option. Later I came across the Satipatthana Sutta and right at the very beginning it says because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is the direct path. This is the rendering of the Pali phrase Ekayano Ayam Bikoe Mako. And most translators have translated it this is the only path or this is the sole way, meaning that this is an exclusive path. But in the context of the Sutta, and uh, based on the uh, Pali, it should be understood as Bhikkhunyana Mori and other uh, learned Pali teachers have uh, shown, it should be um, understood as a path that goes in one way only. And the commentary the Sutta explains that it is a single path, not a divided path. This single path has no side tracks and is a way that only goes in one direction. It goes directly to Nibbana. So the side tracks can mean the jhanas, these states of unequalled bliss and happiness which are the result of deep concentration. Persons who practice the jhanas, these deep states of concentration, can easily get trapped in these blissful states without making any further effort to uproot the defilements. And the commentary goes um, further saying that it is a way that has to be walked by oneself alone without a companion. And when I read that, it immediately brought up this memory of that experience I had in front of the dining hall. So the fact that it is a path walked to be walked alone 
without a companion. This is not contrary to the statement that having uh, good friends, good spiritual friends, is the whole of the spiritual life. Spiritual friends and teachers give us a tremendous support and encouragement on our spiritual path. But when it comes down to penetrate into the deepest truth of nature, then we have to do it ourselves, completely alone. Nobody else can do that for us. In that moment of realization, we cannot depend on the help of another person, but we only can depend on the penetrating power of the Dhamma. To bring about these moments of penetrating insights, we have to establish suitable conditions for insight, understanding and wisdom to grow, we must prepare the ground accordingly. Among the many conditions that can help make the mind pliable, soft, wieldy, clear and collected is seclusion. So on the first level Seclusion means to live in a secluded place, away from people and away from sensual input that can cause desire and lust to arise. And this first level of seclusion is called Kaya Viveka. Viveka is seclusion, Kaya means body, so when the body is removed from the busyness of the world. And in the suttas, the standard descriptions description mentions places such as a forest, to go to the root of a tree, go to a mountain, go, go, go to a ravine, or to a hillside cave, or to a charnel ground, or to a jungle thicket, or going to an open space or going to a heap of straw. Then on the second level, seclusion means the mental seclusion and detachment from sensual objects. And the second level of seclusion is called citta viveka. As long as we live enmeshed in the spinning wheel of ordinary life, it is very difficult to bring about clarity and collectedness of the mind, which is necessary for penetrating insights to arise. Therefore, we have to remove ourselves physically from the busyness of ordinary life and we have to remove ourselves from the almost constant and all-pervading bombardment of the sensual, of sensual input. At the time of the Buddha, it meant to go to a secluded place, such as the jungle, a cave, and so on. Nowadays, 
secluded places to practice meditation are meditation centers or monasteries or maybe a solitary cabin somewhere in the bush or up in the mountains. So when we leave home in order to spend some time in meditation, it is very important that we have carefully organized everything before we leave home. Once on retreat, we should not have to engage in sorting out things or attending to whatever business it might be. So with the physical seclusion, by removing ourselves uh, out of the busy world, we should leave all concerns and matters at home. When I first went to Burma to meditate, I thought it would be for maybe three months, at the most six months. And so during that time I kept writing letters to my family and some of my friends. Although the letters took a long time to get to the destination, or if they made it, sometimes they got lost, I could not let go of this connection to the outside world. But then, in the following year, I was still there. And so then, as my meditation practice was deepening, I started to realize that each time I read a letter, it greatly shook my mind. Even though there was no shocking uh, news, no disastrous uh, uh, news, my mind was thrown out of its balance. And for a day or two, uh, I felt quite restless because my mind was occupied with all that uh, was written in the letter. And therefore, in the second year before Vasa, this is the three months period during the rainy season, I decided not to read any letters for this three months period. So during these three months, whenever I got a letter, I just put it into the cupboard and let it rest there. Once I had made this resolve, not to read any letters, it was relatively easy to just put them uh, away and not read them. Because the experience of how painful and tiring it was to bring my restless mind uh, again into a state of balance was so strong and vivid that I could simply put them away. After the three months had passed, I could clearly see the benefits of this greater degree of seclusion, benefits from secluding the mind from sensual input. At the Buddha's time, the monks and the nuns often went alone to such secluded places to practice meditation. They did not practice meditation to the gathering groups. And so as they were alone, they had no companion to talk to. And so 
they naturally kept noble silence. Nowadays when people go and practice meditation in a meditation center or a monastery, it's uh, essential to keep noble silence. Because each time when we talk, the mind is stirred up and then we need time and energy to settle down the mind again. So if we talk every now and again, then the mind has never the opportunity to fully settle down. My teacher, Jamil Sayadaw, puts great emphasis on noble silence because it's such an important tool for letting the mind settle. Jamil Sayadaw uses to say, five minutes of talking can destroy the concentration of a whole day. And this is true. Once we have accessed a deeper level of concentration, we can realize that for ourselves. But in the beginning of the practice, it might not be so obvious. And we even have the impression that talking a little bit here and there um, is not bad. And actually, we feel uh, encouraged through that. But as we engage in a little conversation here and there, as trivial as it might be, we derive happiness and satisfaction from it, but we do not see that we are just perpetuating old habits and deeply ingrained conditioning. So in this way, rather than benefiting our practice, it becomes counterproductive. As most of us have grown up and are now living in an environment where one is talking all the time, or at least most of the time, it seems so unnatural and challenging to refrain from talking. In daily life, how much do people value silence? Whenever I leave the meditation center, be it in Asia, in Burma, or be it in the West, it is so striking to me to see how silence is a difficult thing to handle for most people. People have the radio or stereo at home or when they go um, to work or just shopping, they cannot do it without listening to their MP3s. Or being together with other people, they cannot um, come together without talking almost endlessly to each other. How many people can come together and then just sit together silently? Because this is the way people have been brought up. Many people cannot stand the silence. It feels threatening. Because 
feels threatening and unpleasant, then people normally escape it. Therefore, they listen to music or they find, they feed the mind with other sensual uh, input. So during an intensive meditation retreat, we are inevitably confronted with silence. We can ask ourselves, how do we respond to this challenge of being silent? Is it easy for us to live in this silent space? Or is it difficult for us, sometimes driving us to the edge? Venerable Tenzin Palmo is an English nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And she had lived and meditated for 12 years in a cave high up in the Indian Himalayas. During the summer months, she had to go and gather food, uh, which had to last for the remaining time of the year. Her cave was high up on a mountain slope, high above the valley. And so once it started snowing, she could not leave the cave anymore. And so for about eight months of the year, she lived secluded in her cave, doing her meditation practice. And there was absolutely no means of communication with other people. There were no other people around to talk to. There was no telephone, no electricity, no opportunity to send letters. So in this way, she lived complete, completely secluded from people and from other sensual input that could cause desire or craving to arise. So there was no other way to deal with loneliness than facing it directly. However big the temptation was to talk to a friend on the phone or to write a letter to a friend or to her teacher, there was simply no way to do it. Even though most meditators do not go to such a totally secluded place for the retreat, the attitude should be of one going into complete seclusion. Although nowadays uh, most meditators practice in a place where other people are meditating and where means of communication are available, we should make a resolution not to engage in any contact, be it with people around us, with our fellow meditators or staff, or trying to get uh, communication with our friends or family at home. In one of the suttas, the Buddha said that one should wander alone like a rhinoceros. A rhinoceros is a solitary animal wandering alone in the woods. And 
On top of that, apparently the Indian rhinoceros has only a single horn, unlike the African one who has two horns. And so this imagery reinforces the notion of being all alone, being like a rhinoceros with a single horn, wandering alone in the jungle. So this sutta has the title Rhinoceros and it is contained in the Nipata Sutta. A beautiful collection of poems which belongs to the Kutakanikaya. I'd like to share uh, some verses with you. As a deer in the wilds, unfettered, goes for forage wherever it wants, the wise person, valuing freedom, wander alone like a rhinoceros. In the midst of companions, when staying at home, when going out wandering, you are prey to requests, valuing the freedom that no one else covets, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Because sensual pleasures, elegant, honeyed and charming, bewitch the mind with their manifold forms, seeing the drawback in sensual strands, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Cold and heat, hunger and thirst, wind and sun, horseflies and snakes, Enduring all these, without exception, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Eyes downcast, not foot loose, senses guarded with protected mind, not oozing, not burning with lust, wander alone like a rhinoceros. So removing ourselves from the busyness of the world and going to a secluded place for our retreat is the first level of seclusion. As I mentioned before, this is called Kaya Viveka. But this is not yet enough because our mind still finds, way, finds, finds ways and means to entertain and distract itself when it is faced with silent, silence or uh, difficult uh, experiences. A further way uh, is to restrain our sense doors, especially our eyes. When they are unguarded, a lot of our concentration and mindfulness that we have built up can be lost through the eyes in no time. And, in, and on top of that, the sensory input that we receive through the eyes causes new distractions and restlessness in the mind. As it is said in one of the verses, eyes downcast, not footloose, senses guarded, with protected mind. So to restrain our eyes 
and to have them downcast can be a great support for our meditation practice. I noticed this myself after some months of practice in Burma and therefore I resolved to restrain my eyes to that point that I would always keep them gazing down on the ground about six foot ahead of me. I determined that I never would look up, look to the sides or into the distance in order to see what was around me. I did this result because for me it was extremely difficult not knowing what was going on in my, in my vicinity, not knowing who was sitting or standing uh, near me. So I really wanted to overcome this compulsive force and so strongly ingrained habit. So with a sincere inclination of the heart and a strong resolve uh, in my mind, I managed to do it for the whole three months that um, I had determined it. For example, when bowing down in the dining hall, meditators bow down to the front where uh, the Sayadaws uh, sit. So when bowing down, I always had this uh, strong desire and urge just to look up for a moment to see whether or not Jamie Sayadaw was there or not. And so before I did the result, I just let my eyes gaze to the front, is he there or not, and knowing that much was okay. And so after I did this result, when bowing down, I just felt this strong urge to look for a split second, but having done the result, I did not let my eyes look uh, up. Or sometimes it happened that when uh, leaving the dining hall and going back to my room, I had to cross a little, quite narrow bridge going over a little canal. And so even though I was restraining my eyes, looking down on the ground, um, if another person overtook me or came from the other direction, I just saw some legs in the field of my vision. And sometimes it happened that what came into my field of vision was a pair of sneakers and jeans. And Burmese people don't wear sneakers, they don't wear jeans. And so that meant that a new foreigner had arrived, not yet uh, changed to the uh, traditional Burmese uh, yogi uniform, wearing slippers and uh, longi. So again, before uh, doing that resolve, I just had to look up and see who this person was. Was it a man, a woman? Was it a Western person or an Asian person? And knowing that much was fine. But after doing my resolve, again, I just not noticed this strong uh, force 
to look up. I wanted to know. I had to know, I thought, as if it was in my responsibility uh, for this foreigner. But uh, sticking to my resolve, I refrained from looking up. So, to do this, to keep this resolve, was definitely not easy, but I also realized that it was definitely a great support for my meditation practice. It helped my mind to settle more and to gain deeper levels of stillness, which in turn led to a greater degree of clarity in my mind. The mind became quite clear, almost transparent, and this helped to see things more clearly. If it seems too daunting to do such a result for three months, then you, be you can begin with shorter periods of time. The result could be not to look up from while walking from the meditation hall up to the dining hall. Or it could be the result to have one's eyes downcast during one whole meal. Or it could be the determination to keep the eyes gazing down during one walking meditation. Or if this is uh, too daunting, too much, maybe just for uh, ones going up and down. I find, I find that at times it's good and beneficial to dare something new and challenging as it can open up new horizons for our practice. Unless we do it, we cannot know the benefits from it. Along this line of sense restraint, another helpful tool for our practice is to simplify and slow down our actions. By slowing down our movements while eating, dressing, taking a shower, drinking a cup of tea or coffee and so forth, we are inevitably confronted with our strong conditioned habitual pattern. And so slowing down immediately brings uh, a much bigger degree of awareness into our practice and as a result we become more focused in the present moment. Even if we think that we are pretty mindful uh, of the movements while eating, for example, we will realize that this mindfulness is actually uh, quite shallow once we start to slow down more. And once we slow, uh, start to slow down our actions and movements, we also start to see that at times there are actually many actions, many movements happening at the same time. For example, when we are chewing the food, we think that we are fully aware of these chewing movements, but 
we do not realize that at the same time our hand is already gathering the next spoonful of food. Or when we think we are really very carefully observing the swallowing of the food, we are not realizing that, that, that at the same time the hand is already lifted up uh, to the mouth. Or when we are approaching a door, while mindfully walking to the door, being mindfully aware of the movements uh, of the feet, then arriving in front of the door, we notice that our hand has already been lifted up and is uh, touching the handle of the door. Or when standing up uh, from our sitting meditation, being mindful of the movements of standing up, then as we start walking towards the door, actually we realize that we are still uh, adjusting our clothes or our shawl. So in this way, there are many instances throughout the day where we act on um, autopilot rather than being fully aware of the present moment, of the present action or movement. When I was young, when I was a child, I was very good at doing several things at the same time. And so my mother used to say, one thing after another, like in Paris. I don't know where this saying comes from or how it originated, but this is what I uh, heard very often from my mother, one thing after the other, like in Paris. But anyway, and especially during a meditation retreat, it is good to just do one thing at a time. Just chewing the food and be fully aware of these chewing movements until the chewing uh, is finished. At that moment, uh, there is nothing more important in this world than to be fully aware of this chewing movement. And actually, the mind can only attend to one object at a given time. So to see clearly and penetrate into the nature of the object that is observed, one needs the focused awareness on that object. or walking towards the door, can we just be fully aware of the movements of the feet, movements uh, involved in walking, and then when we stand in front of the door, then start lifting the arm to reach the handle of the door. So in this way, the mind has only to attend to one object, then 
it's able to deal with one object at a time. And this allows the mind to uh, settle deeper into the present moment and to become more focused. So then when the mind is more focused and concentrated, then the mind becomes incredibly sharp and clear and this in turn allows penetrating insights to arise. Later on in the practice we come to see that all these actions and movements of the different parts of the body are that they arise because there is an intention in the mind. There is the desire to stand up or there is the intention to food to do uh, to chew the food. All physical actions and movements have their origin in the mind. So with the restraint of our eyes and with the slowing down of our actions and movements, we actually get some indication of how much aware we are of the mind. Each time we find ourselves looking to the side without intentionally doing so, we know that we missed to see the intention to look to the side. Or each time we find ourselves reaching for the glass of water while still chewing the food, we get an indication that we missed to see this uh, intention to reach for the glass and we also miss to see the initial movement of actually reaching. The mind uh, mental processes are so fast that there is nothing in this world which can be compared to the swiftness of the mind. Before we, re we reach uh, that deep level of concentration and sharp mindfulness to be aware of all the processes that go on in the mind, we can start observing uh, physical objects which are more distinct and easier to note. In the Abhidhamma it is said that the mental processes are 17 times faster than physical processes. That means the, the time it takes for one physical process to arise and disappear, in that time 17 moments of mind arise and disappear. So when we manage to live in a secluded place and do as much as we can to reduce essential input from the environment, then we will get citta viveka, the second level of seclusion. And this is the mental seclusion and detachment from sensual objects. Venerable Tenzin Palmo 
points out to the fact that this second level of seclusion is much more important than the first one. Even if we live alone and secluded in a cave for 20 years or even for the rest of our life, when we, when we cannot detach ourselves from the attachment to and craving for sensual objects, then living in a cave does not serve the purpose. Venerable Tenzin Palmo said, True renunciation is giving up all our well-cherished thoughts, our delight in memories, hope and fantasies. To renounce all this and stay naked in the presence, this is true renunciation. And this is in line with what the Buddha said to one of his monks. This monk was a lone dweller and he spoke in praise of dwelling alone. A group of monks reported this to the Buddha and the Buddha told them to go and call this monk. When he arrived at the place where the Buddha was staying, he paid respect to him and then sat down. And so then the Buddha asked him if it was true that he was a lone dweller and that he praised um, dwelling alone. And so the monk replied that it was true. And so the Buddha wanted to know how he was practicing this. And to this the monk answered, I enter the village for alms alone. I return alone. I sit alone in a private place and I undertake walking meditation alone. It is in such a way that I am a lone dweller and speak in praise of dwelling alone. Then the Buddha said that this was a way of dwelling alone, but he did not deny this. But he continued to explain how this could be fulfilled in greater detail. And so the Buddha gave the following instructions to this monk. Listen and attend closely to what I say. What lies in the past has been abandoned. What lies in the future has been relinquished. And desire and lust for present forms has been thoroughly removed. It is in such a way that dwelling alone is fulfilled in greater detail. So can we give up all our well-cherished memories about the past? Can we stop indulging in fantasies about the future? Can we, can we remove the desire and craving for present sensual objects? We all have probably experienced it to a certain degree that when the mind is deprived of all the usual external sense impressions, then it starts to go berserk. And then the mind is trying to compensate with all kinds of thoughts. 
and fantasies. At that time, any kind of thought is good enough to fill this vacuum and feed the mind with some uh, sense input. So then the mind comes up with the most unlikely fantasies about our future or the mind digs into the past to get something juicy out of it or it simply goes over some trivial facts that float on the surface. So when the mind is deprived of its uh, usual input, it is easily contented with whatever it can get hold of it. For example, again, when practicing in Burma in these initial years, this lack of sense input resulted that at one stage I started to get very interested and uh, started to read the ingredients of my toothpaste. <laughs> at least something different, something new. And when that had uh, warmed off, when that was not interesting anymore, then uh, because I was sharing the room with another yogi and she was not a nun, she had shampoo in the shower. So then my mind craved for reading what was written on her shampoo, reading all the ingredients there. At another time, a monk called Migajala came to the Buddha and asked him what was meant by dwelling alone and what was meant by dwelling with a partner. And so the Buddha explained that delighting in any object perceived by the six senses is called dwelling with a partner. And the Buddha continued to say that even when a monk was going into the forest or to a secluded place without abandoning craving, this monk was still considered to be one dwelling with a partner. Then the Buddha said that not taking delight in any object perceived by the six senses, this is called dwelling alone. And the Buddha continued to say that even when a monk was living in the vicinity of a village associating with other monks and nuns or with lay people, then this monk was still called one dwelling alone because this monk had abandoned craving uh, for the input of the senses. It is only with the complete removal and abandoning of these kinds of thoughts that we can speak of a secluded mind, citta viveka. A mind that is absorbed in the jhanas is free from these kinds of thoughts and therefore that can be called a secluded mind. However, this seclusion is only a temporary uh, 
mental seclusion. As soon as the mind comes out of this jhana, then the mind is again uh, assailed by these kinds of thoughts. When we practice vipassana meditation, we are focused on the objects from moment to moment. And when this moment to moment concentration becomes strong and powerful, then it's, it corresponds to a jhanic concentration and therefore it has the power to keep these thoughts at bay. And then the mind is secluded from thoughts about the past, the future and the present. When the power of insight becomes powerful and penetrating, then it has the capacity to uproot certain defilements at the moment of past knowledge, which happens at the four stages of enlightenment. Then, at that stage, particular defilements are completely uprooted once and forever. And so with the attainment of the fourth stage of enlightenment, the final one, then all the existing defilements have been completely uprooted. And so therefore, the complete, perfect and final seclusion is Nibbana. Only with the attainment of final liberation are we freed or secluded from all kinds of defilements and the resulting suffering. I will end this talk with the words of a deva who approached a monk uh, who was practicing out in the woods. The deva realized that this monk was overcome with unwholesome thoughts connected to the household life. Out of compassion for the monk and to arouse a sense of urgency in him, the deva addressed this monk with the following verses. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind dashes outwardly. Remove the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let me remind you of the way followed by the wise. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil with a shake flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. So may all of you be able to attain the complete, perfect and final seclusion of Nibbāna. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.